thank you and good morning. I, um, I am jealous about the band and uh, who would have been good to be there. Uh, and a good bass player usually is somewhat anonymous, I, I have to say. Uh, I'm really appreciative of this opportunity to talk about the En Gedi Scroll and my work with it. And uh, I want to thank Pastor Elliot for um, making this work out and uh, also as one of your distinguished alumni, you know, for allowing me to sit under his uh, preaching at First Alliance. I've been your academic neighbor here in Lexington for 25 years. Came to Lexington in 1991 from the University of Wisconsin as an assistant professor of computer science and with a newly minted PhD. And since then, uh, my wife and I have made the bluegrass our home. I'm also your brother in Christ. I came to faith early and grew up in a Christian and missionary alliance church in Springville, New York. And um, from that alliance experience to this alliance experience has been a wonderful um, number of years. Today, what I hope to make the case for uh, is that we may have more in common than in our vocational callings than it might seem at first blush. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about the discovery of a biblical text. And the story of this discovery has uh, become the story of my summer and my fall. Thanks to a thing called the internet, the news traveled uh, from the press conference we held this summer into a number of surprising venues. Of course, my colleagues at UK were excited to see a news item appear in the New York Times. Um, and of course, many of my Jessamine County friends didn't believe anything until Fox News picked it up. I spent my career as a professor in computer science at the University of Kentucky, and as a graduate student, I wrote my thesis in an area called computer vision, the study of how to make hardware and computer code that can mimic our ability to see. So I did early work at the British Library with the Cotton Collection, which may seem at odds, but the image is the central part of seeing. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to see. Is that something that a computer can do? Why is it so hard to build something that can do what almost every child can practically do at birth? And now you know why my favorite part of Paul's love chapter in 1 Corinthians is actually the part where he writes, for now we see by means of a mirror in an enigma, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and the word there has to do with fragmentary knowledge, but then I shall know even as I was known. You can find an image of this text, which is part of the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, preserved in St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai, and then now at the British Library. You can find that online, and you can see the image with your cell phone. Being able to do things like that was a national and personal vision that drove my early career. So I entered the digital library movement, this idea that online content should be more than random information that people like you and me just happen to put online. But that content should also include library quality, even manuscript quality information. What I discovered when I started working with material that should be in a digital library was this. Some things are incredibly hard to make into a readable image. You see an image behind me from the Cotton Collection, badly damaged medieval manuscript, left in its damaged state for all to see how difficult a problem it's become to see anything on any of those manuscript pages. Behold, we see through a glass darkly. Basically, if something is too fragile, how can you photograph it or scan it or make it into something that's a digital representation? I became fascinated by what I call the digitally resistant 
things that should be made digital so we can see them, but for various reasons they end up becoming incredibly hard to digitize. The En Gedi scroll is digitally resistant. It was discovered in 1972 by an archaeologist by the name of Sefi Parath. He's on the right on this photo, and his archaeological team at a dig just outside the beautiful springs of En Gedi, which is on the west shore of the Dead Sea, that team discovered uh, a number of things, including that scroll. The dig itself was expansive, and there were many discoveries. Uh, you can see from the aerial view how large the temple floor was, but the scrolls were probably the most mysterious and also the most hopeless. They were discovered within the holy ark of the temple, buried beneath the temple floor. The mosaic floor that you see is still one of the beautifully pre preserved pieces of that excavation. Parath told me himself that they immediately knew the potential value of the cache when they discovered it, and they quickly spirited the find away to the Israel Antiquities Authority for safekeeping. For those of you who remember the late 60s, early 70s in Israel, uh, there were a lot of concerns about security and safety. There continue to be, of course, but the team spared no expense in safekeeping the materials they discovered. But the damage was extensive, and everything that they pulled from the ark was burnt almost beyond recognition. And this began one of Parath's greatest career mysteries, for in the intervening 43 years, there was no solution to the damage suffered by the scrolls that he discovered at En Gedi. Now, let me say something. In 1972, I was eight, okay? I grew up in New York, not the city, but in upstate Buffalo, and some people, when I tell them that, offer condolences. <laughs> My mother's family came from Europe and made it their way from Ellis Island up the Hudson to the Erie Canal, and the Erie Canal ended in western New York near Buffalo, and so that's where they settled. My dad got caught up in all of it, bless his heart, as a Texan, seeing the world, and that world eventually included my beautiful mother who was the pianist at the local Christian Missionary Alliance Church. That was the church my dad decided to attend while he was working on a gas pipeline as a young man. My maternal grandmother, my mother's mother, Ethel Putterick, was a charter member of that church and a huge influence in my life growing up. So I'd like to dedicate this talk to her memory because I know she would just love the story of the Angeti scroll. Her favorite scripture was Genesis. She felt that it perfectly described everything she'd ever seen about human nature. And grandma had been around. She was the firstborn. Her mother died giving her birth. She was a breech baby, which was bad in the early 1900s. In fact, at her birth, the doctor pulled her hip out of joint and didn't know it. And so she bore that handicap for her whole life. Of course, as a grandson, I knew little of that until much later. Uh, it seems true, actually, that childhood is its own kind of blindness. Anyway, what do you do with the charred remains of a scroll? What can you do? Because you can't see anything. It turns out that Panina Shore had been asking that question for a while. Panina is the curator of the Dead Sea Scroll Collection, which is one of the most iconic collections of manuscripts in the world. Its discovery in Qumran, which unfolded over a 10-year period starting in 1946, forever changed biblical archaeology. And Panina, as the curator of a collection that you have to describe as magnificent, has the responsibility for its care 
the ongoing scholarship around the collection, and the legacy that it represents for all of us. Can you imagine that kind of work day? Panina is a brilliant conservator, and she's a major influence in the positive push to open the Dead Sea Scroll collection for scholarly study. She'd heard of my work with the digitally resistant, and early this year she caught wind of a potential new discovery in the world of Herculaneum and, and Pompeii. My research colleagues and I believed we had finally had a breakthrough in our efforts to read material from the library at Herculaneum, which incidentally is the only complete surviving library from antiquity. And you can read about that in last week's New Yorker magazine. So it started like that. Panina sent me an email. I answered it. We met last March in Los Angeles at the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit in the Science Center, where she was setting up an exhibit with her staff. So on opening day, I flew out to discuss possibilities. And she met me, and she gave me a personal tour of the exhibit. All the Dead Sea Scroll material that was there, uh, she walked me through, hand-guided. It was a wonderful experience, something I won't ever forget. And, and when we finished the tour, she sat down with a colleague and me, and we showed her how our methods worked. I'll show you the same in a minute. She handed me a hard drive, which had over a terabyte of data on it from the Dead Sea Scroll collection. Much of that was a micro-computed tomography scan of the En Gedi Scroll. Computed tomography is the kind of thing that you could actually get here in Lexington at the clinic to be able to see inside your body, the kind of tomography we use for this material is at a much, much finer scale. So we copied that data for safekeeping and we headed back to Kentucky. And when we got to back to the lab, reality hit and we realized the challenge we were facing. The data had already been analyzed extensively by the scan team, an Israeli by the name of David Merkel, and he worked with Panina's team to collect the data. Micro-CT is based on X-ray, and scientists call X-ray sources lights. But X-rays are anything but your normal table lamp. X-rays go right through things, and because they do, we can see them to use, we can use them to see the insides of pretty much anything. So talk about seeing through mirrors and lenses and dark glasses. X-rays have a very, very small wavelength, which is another way to say that when you shine them on things, you can see things that are really small. So Merkel's scan was at a resolution of 17 microns. That means that each tiny pixel of the images that we were to look at from that scan represented the width of a, a strand of silk. And the Merkel team couldn't make any progress. Uh, and so we started working. And Panina later said that uh, she felt like it was a shot in the dark. How's that for confidence? <laughs> if you grew up in Buffalo, New York, you understand darkness and snow. Uh, this is my house in Springville. My grandma, you know, in the winter, she used to take us out. The three boys, me and my brothers, uh, with my mom, and she would buy us shoes. That was grandma's thing. She took us to a local shop downtown. We'd all leave it with shoes for the year. Grandma loved to shop at Simon Brothers. It was the only clothing store in town. She hated it later when the big box stores drove out the, uh, the local downtown area. Some of you may be familiar with this kind of a small community. You might have grown up in that kind of part of America. The experience of picking out the shoes and the clothes took time, and you can imagine how that met with three squirming boys. My grandma and my mom would chat, and they'd sample things, and we'd get fitted, and we'd ultimately leave with the shoes, and grandma would pick up the bill. The store owners, the Simons, were Jewish. 
And my grandma loved that, and she couldn't help herself. She loved talking to them about Genesis, about her teaching in Sunday school, of the Bible in general, and they genuinely loved the banter. They had a friendship. Grandma talked about God's chosen people, and the Simons would swear Grandma was Jewish. <laughs> they would say, Ethel, your maiden name is Lavin, and you think that you came from Ireland, but we know the truth. Your grandfather changed his name to escape persecution. It was surely Levine. And Grandma's eyes they sparkled at that thought. Well, here's what we're dealing with. Typical slice from the En Gedi scroll from the micro CT scanner looks like that. The contrast isn't great for you, but what you see are a bunch of circular lines that represent a cross-section of the animal skin. And the damage in that cross-section is clear. You can see the cells of the skin, the way the heat caused the skin and its structure to suffer during the burn. And as you look at the scan, you're seeing an end-on view as if the scroll were rolled up and you're looking uh, from the end all the way through. This is how the scanner works, so it's one big problem to carefully and faithfully convert what the scanner gives you into something that you can read on a page. Let me also say that the scale is remarkable. It's hard to tell in this photo because it's a close-up with the hand behind, but in this photo, you can see that the actual scroll is remarkably small, it's tiny. And I actually have a facsimile here that I'd like to pass around. It's a 3D print from the scan we made. I'm just gonna toss it to you. So you can get a sense holding it in your hand of the size of this scroll. The kind of technology that we've invented to try to see inside something this small is hard to get an intuition about. So I have a short video that I'd like to play for you with narration that gives you a sense of what we've done. For thousands of years, people have written on scrolls. The scrolls can contain historical records, religious texts, or stories, but many of them have been damaged over time. For example, the Ian Getty scrolls found near the Dead Sea were in a building that had burned down, leaving the scrolls charred, blackened, and brittle. But since the Ian Getty scrolls would crumble to ash if opened, how can we ever unlock their contents? There is, in fact, a way to read scrolls without damaging them. Imagine for a moment that a baker has two types of dough. The white dough represents papyrus, and the red dough represents ink. Using the red dough, the baker can create a pie symbol on the white dough. When the baker rolls up the dough, the pie symbol is obviously no longer visible, just like when papyrus is rolled up. Imagine the effects of time and the environment are this oven, baking the pastry for a thousand years. If the pastry were still soft, the baker could simply unroll it, but now it would break and the information would be lost. The baker can, however, slice the pastry and decode the message from the traces of red dough in each slice. Using sophisticated technology, it is now possible for the scrolls to be digitally unrolled without ever damaging the scroll. It's important for damaged scrolls containing unique, ancient information to be both physically and digitally preserved. There are many ancient scrolls which are too damaged to read, but likely contain historically enlightening information.
digitization and virtual unwrapping allow us to view this otherwise inaccessible information. Intuition. Um, thanks to First Alliance for the use of their professional kitchen. <laughs> and I have to say that um, many people around the world have seen that kitchen because the Smithsonian linked to that piece uh, after we did the press release. I was really happy about that. We built software to, to find layers in the scroll and to connect those layers. The next video shows the Engedi data so that uh, the layers on the right clearly line up with the shape on the left, which is what our software does. And in that cross section, you can see how one feeds into the other. Putting all those together is not that easy to do, and so the software um, that we're working on allows a user who may in fact be naive of the languages to put those layers together purely from a structural point of view. I don't read Hebrew, so as we put the writing together, we could clearly see it beginning to form. We didn't really know um, anything about what the text might say. So eventually it came time for my summer vacation and I took off to Lake Michigan with my family. And we went to the lake and stayed with friends who have a lake house. Um, and while we were up there, I got an email from Panina Shore. It was short. Hello, Brent. Hope all is well. Can you please update us on the status of the work you've been doing with the CT images? Merkle Technologies are also eager to know what's been achieved. I, I hadn't given a report. We didn't have a complete analysis and I was on vacation. In fact, I felt like I was probably in trouble because I'd gone too long without getting back to Panina to let her know what we were up to. So I queried my team and I asked for the best image so far and I sent it to Panina as an email attachment. I didn't hear anything for two days and so I knew I was in trouble. I hadn't had time to produce a polished report, uh, produce a full analysis, and this was Panina Shore. I mean, she's a towering giant of a curator uh, over the Dead Sea Scroll collection. So the images that I sent weren't that great. They were what we had. On this screen, you won't really be able to see anything. And so I got back and started working on a full report and also on another project that had been languaging. And actually took off for lunch because I needed to hide to actually get some work done. And I don't know if that ever happens to you. Sometimes hiding is the only way to get anything done. So while I was in hiding on the morning of Thursday, July 16th, I checked my email and Panina had finally responded. And she said this, Dear Brent, you won't believe what groundbreaking discovery you have made. It is still all hush-hush because we want to have a press conference about it next week. When you have deciphered, what you have deciphered is the first chapter of the book of Leviticus. After the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is the earliest Bible ever found, and we already have it carbon dated to the 6th century CE. And if that's not enough, it's the first time ever a Bible has been found within an excavated synagogue. She goes on about being excited and how we were going to do all this work in the next two days. <laughs> tell you, it was really overwhelming and wonderful to read her email. Uh, she sent back this image, which amplified the text and then lined up uh, the text of Leviticus with many of the words that matched. Um, she didn't really need a better image to be able to do the reading. 
I gathered my team together in an all-hands-on-deck move, and we worked all weekend to render everything we could in the best possible way and write a press release. Couldn't get to Israel in time, so we planned for a Skype conference at my office. Uh, from the University of Kentucky to Jerusalem, live on uh, Monday, the 20th of July. Benina explained to me that Tisha B'Av was Saturday, July 26th, and that our discovery was very symbolic and perfectly timed uh, for the announcement of and the observance of that fast. In contrast to the morning of Tisha B'Av, you have to admit that there's a wonderful, sweet feeling when you know something that nobody else knows yet. And it's heightened when the knowledge that you have feels somehow important and that the number of people who, who are going to find out about it you know, are probably going to be interested in it. You feel a little bit like this at the holidays when you have gifts for your family that you hope that will please them. And you also feel, you have this feeling like you're walking uh, you know, above everybody else, looking down and saying, hey, um, I can see something right now that you, you can't see yet. So at church on Sunday, I showed Pastor Steve the image of the text on my cell phone. And I told him, remember it was all hush-hush, right? That uh, we were going to have a press conference on Monday. And he looked at me in his eyes. I felt welled up just a little bit. And he smiled because I think he knows that feeling too, probably a lot more than I do. Uh, and I'd like to think that he felt uh, uh, interested in, in me sharing that. Monday came. And uh, through the miracle of a technology, we did a complete press conference live from Skype. And you can see me photographed by the press corps in Jerusalem on the screen with my students sitting on my shoulders in that view, whispering into my ears. Before the start of that conference, I met Sefi Pereth. Um, I mean, he's got to be 80. Came out of retirement, and he told me what an extraordinary moment it was for him to know that the scroll he discovered in 1972 was the Bible. We talked about his work, and I asked him if he could send me some photos from the dig. He sent me pictures of the original dig, and when you look at them, you get this sense of how absolutely unlikely it was that the scrolls survived, let alone that we could tease anything about the text out of them. Panina tells me that there are more fragments from the Engedi dig, and we're moving now to try to scan more of what they have and see what the scans look like. We're also wringing the rest of the text out of what the current scroll contains. We put a few more images out there and uh, we're working on some publications and that kind of thing. Uh, we have some visualizations that you can find if you're interested that show the full text we've been able to segment and the um, way that we visualize that text as it gets flattened out. Here's a visualization of the flattening as a, a rendering so that you can see how we morph 3D structure of the writing from the layer inside the scroll into a flat text that's readable. So a lot of questions. What's, what else is in the collection? Is Genesis there? Nina wanted to know if there was text that preceded Leviticus because you know what comes before Leviticus. Exodus, wonderful. That's what grandma would want to know too. Where's Genesis? It was her favorite and she knew it in the King James backward and forward. She, my grandma probably would not ask very much about the technology. When grandma was born and was a kid, there was barely radio, no one had a car, and flying was for the birds. And her F word was fiddlesticks. So. <laughs> but this is the nature of calling. It carries you through places that are special and unique and even blessed. 
A journey like that, you want to be able to see. A lot of times when we try to see things in this world, the mirrors are enigmatic and they're dark and they're unclear. That's why I really love this verse from Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. It's remarkable that we can see digital images from Dead Sea Scrolls written 2,000 years ago on your cell phone right now, which show those words. So this has been my path. It's possible now to recover text from scrolls as digitally resistant as the En Gedi scroll, using technology less than 10 years old, based on the last 100 years of progress. For the last 10 years, I have to note, I worked on a project where that had not happened. For the last 43 years, Sefi Parath had no idea what the En Gedi scroll contained. And for the 1,500 years before that, those scrolls were lost. They were buried beneath the floor of the En Gedi temple. This is, this is the path. I, I believe that my grandma saw her path clearly, and I'm grateful today that she did. Of course, I'm, I'm imagining now that she might want me to check up a little bit more on the Levine idea, for sure. My grandma lived out her calling, and she knew how hard it was in this world to see and how much we need the light of God's word to shine light on the paths we ought to take. And oh, she clearly knew her role in keeping us on God's path. And part of that was buying us a good pair of shoes. Thank you. <laughs>